Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali Rizvi, and with me, we have actually two co-hosts today, which I'm very, very excited about. I, uh, I'm not going to say. Um, Armin Navabi, how are you? <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Susanna, Susanna's back with us this time. Hey, Susanna. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and Susanna's actually brought back this time our guest, you know, Abdullah Gondal, who was here last time for that brilliant episode you guys heard. Um, and we're going to be continuing that now. He specifically requested her uh, because uh, Suzanne oh, actually has a, a I didn't lot know of that. Well, you, you have a lot of insight into uh, the issues that we're going to be talking about today. So I think that it's going to be really interesting and I'm excited about it. Um, yeah, so uh, this is part two of a series that we did uh, kind of looking at independent though you don't need to see part one to, to understand this yeah you don't have to i mean th these are all sort of uh independent topic topic as yes. well um but uh, if you're interested you should definitely check out the last episode as well um we are looking at the descriptions of muhammad the prophet of islam the descriptions in islamic scripture like the quran uh in the hadith and yes. also the sirah in his biographies and uh, we're looking at that and matching it up with what we know about uh, psychology, neurology, um, mm -hmm. which is the way that human behavior is shaped today. Uh, so doing a little bit of retrospective analysis. Uh, and Armin, you have a disclaimer to make. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Last time I kept on saying, well, we don't know this happened. We don't know that happened. I kept on saying allegedly until Ali started making fun of me and saying like, <laughs> everything is like, yes, yes, yes. Everything is allegedly. So I'm just going to. Um, just suspend disbelief today. I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna disclaimer is like, I don't think any of this has happened. Um, I don't think we have any evidence for any of these stories. Uh, I think most of this is fiction, if not all of it. I think all of it. Um, but we're gonna treat it like we could psychologically analyze Voldemort and see, um, if we can do that with Harry Potter and Voldemort or Thor. Um, and um, with the understanding of fiction um, is written by people uh, who, you know, re reflects the writer. If, if it doesn't reflect the character, it could reflect the real people behind these stories, right? So I'm just going to, we're going to treat these fictions, uh, I'm going to treat them as if they're real. And, uh, you know, so not going to say allegedly, well, we don't know if this has happened or not throughout the episode. So I'm just going to, and I know some people probably got annoyed with me constantly questioning whether these things happened or not in that previous episode. So in this episode, we're going to treat the stories as if they're real. All right. yeah, Armin is just, Armin is just always looking for an opportunity to talk about how he doesn't think that what we know about the prophet Muhammad is real. He thinks that there was an Arabic warlord who claimed to be a prophet. And that's pretty much the only thing we know. Right. He, he, he likes to talk about it a lot. So yeah, yeah, which is 
Which kind of so to contextualize what Armin is saying and give some heft to it, I should mention really, really quickly that uh, the first biography of Muhammad was published, uh, that surviving biography was written down uh, almost 200 years after his death. Uh, that's sort of like reading the first biography of Napoleon Bonaparte today, right? Um, the first uh, the collections of Hadith, right, were, were also collected around 200 years after his death. So this is the basis of what Armin's saying. So it does have some legitimacy, but today what we're gonna do is we're gonna actually really dive into it. Last time, Abdullah, Abdullah, welcome to the show again. Thank you. It's good to have you back. Thanks again uh, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, last time we talked about his childhood a little bit and you know modern neurology and uh, aspects of uh, how that applied to Muhammad. But today I wanted to focus on a more chronological narrative style thing instead of cherry picking parts from his life. So I want to talk about you know when he was born, how he was born, but we're going to touch upon when he was young, we don't really know much about this guy apart from, you know, what he personally chose to tell people when he was older. That, oh, this happened to me or that happened to me or some of his cousins that have narrated tidbits of his childhood. But what we do find about his life is, you know, that he went through a lot of trauma. He saw a lot of hardship. And one thing we know today that a lot of the cult leaders or people that suffer from uh, psychological or psychotic disorders have these uh, these issues or these psychological traumas in childhood. In fact, I was able to find something related that epilepsy patients, especially temporal epileptics, have a 40% more likeliness to have had a childhood trauma, uh, either be childhood neglect or childhood abuse, physical or emotional. And why is this important? Because Muhammad was away from his mother for about first four to six years of his life. And during that, he had about two, allegedly two episodes or seizure-like events where he was alleged to be possessed by a demon. Yeah. And then his parents died, both of them. And we'll get back more to that. So I'll yeah, let's let's go with mm -hmm. the. So we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. And I think this is great. Mm -hmm. But let's start with a little bit of chronology for people who don't know. So Muhammad was born uh, mm -hmm. after his father's death. Like his <clears> father <throat> died before he was born, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, after he was born. Uh, at a very young age, in pretty much infancy, uh, well, he had oh, a wet nurse, six. so oh. right. Oh. So, well, what? But he was sent uh, to uh, uh, Halima, right? Halima, his uh, wet nurse. So, he, his mother wasn't even around during that time. Exactly. So, what we what we see is like he's born and he's a few months old, and this uh, there's in some of the narrations it's mentioned that in Mecca during the time when he was born was the year of the elephant, where you know the army of the elephant came. And also during that time, Mecca was facing a plague or a famine or some sort of a disease. And this kind of corresponds with the Justinian plague that had happened around the area, area in 545. And uh, so these women come from Banu Saad, it's a tribe, and about like 10 women or something. And they all try to take an orphan with them, not an orphan, sorry, a child with them to breastfeed. So the Islamic literature books claim that this was a tradition and a norm that everybody would just kind of give their kids away in infancy to these women who would just take these kids away for like two years and breastfeed them. And like this was happening willy nilly, right? Uh, but what's funny is uh, when you look at Muhammad's own life, did Muhammad give any of his own children away like this to any vet nurse? No. Did Muhammad's grandparents uh, or did Muhammad, Ali's children, were they given away to wet nurses? So when you actually do a survey of all the people we know around Muhammad in the books, 
none of them seem to have given their children away to any wet nurse. So he's kind of quickly realized, okay, this wasn't the norm. This might have been an anomaly. What about people what? from the older generation? Like his contemporaries are older. Were they given away? Do we have any information on that? Exactly. Yeah. So we don't really have a lot of information on this. And in fact, we, his contemporaries, like his uncles and stuff that grew up with him or his cousins, they most of them were in fact not given away to anybody. Hmm. So um, but I'm going to comment on this, but I do want to go back to the birth itself at some point. Um, my What we were told uh, in school by our teachers is that um, everybody did this. And maybe if I wanted to put my Muslim hat on, maybe the explanation for why after we don't, nobody after did this is because Muhammad completely revolutionized how everything works. Uh, maybe it was common, maybe it was a norm when Muhammad was born. I mean, the entire economy of Mecca, the Quraysh, everything was revolutionized when um, when Muhammad came to power. So maybe like, I don't know, maybe it wasn't economically, maybe, wait, like one reason they put the kids away was for economic reasons. Maybe people, the Arabs were richer now because of- Well, that's why I asked about the, the previous so, yeah. <laughs> so another interesting point is that uh, Firstly, Muhammad didn't come to any political significant power till like when he was still 50, right? So that'd be like 620 AD. Mm. But even between 570 to 620, we don't see a lot of contemporaries of Muhammad being given away to these wet nurses. Now, what's interesting is a uh, financial bit. Muhammad's mom was a single mother, you know, mm. and she first gave away Muhammad. So one of the interesting bits is when these women came to Mecca, they were first presented Muhammad and they were, he was presented to the women 10 times as per the sealed nectar. And all 10 women rejected Muhammad, citing that uh, he's an orphan and an orphan will give us no benefit and his father will be able to give us no capital income or anything. And Muhammad was rejected by 10 different women till the point Halima was sad that she'd be returning without a child. So out of pity on herself, she decided to take Muhammad. So what we see first is why was Muhammad's mother so, so, so adamant that she presented her child to 10 different women after being rejected, the women left and then the lady was feeling bad. She came back and then she still gave her child away. So that's something that's interesting is maybe Muhammad's mother wasn't that well off because especially uh, divorced uh, widows or women that are mm -hmm. single like this wouldn't be... I wouldn't have a social status, you know, that give them good opportunities later on in life. Well, she wasn't divorced or like single. I feel like that makes it sound like she was never married. She was widowed. She's widowed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, is it, tr I heard some, like, these are things that we weren't told when we were kids, but now we're learning about them because of stuff that is in, you know, other Muslims are saying, is it true that there are, some narratives that say that Muhammad was like Amina was pregnant with Muhammad for four years. No, so there's an anomaly in one of the narrations where it's mentioned that Hamza, the uncle of Muhammad, or a cousin, something like that, he was four years or something older or younger than Muhammad. And then another narration says that Muhammad and his mother were pregnant at the same time. So how can he be four years younger than his this his little nephew? 
but be born mm -hmm. at or be pregnant at the same time. So this was a discrepancy. Most scholars say it's just part of the corpus and how you know how hearsay goes, and it's mm -hmm. just a very singular narration. Right, but right, right. yeah, I don't think it's true that he was uh, four years or that some people use this narration to say that Muhammad's dad could have been somebody else instead of Abdullah and that, you know. What about the story? How much, uh, how much, uh, how authentic is this according to Islamic canon that Muhammad's father, the day, the night that he impregnated Amina, uh, before it, there was a woman in the street that saw Abdullah light. <laughs> and he saw a light in Abdullah and that woman wanted Ab Abdullah is Muhammad's uh, father. I, that woman was like, you need to have sex with me right now because I did. I like, because there's a light in you. Can you come to my home and like, give me that? You know? <laughs> the lure on your face. <laughs> and that, then, that, that, that just happened to me yesterday. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, that, Ab Abdullah it, it, was like, "This go away from me." Weird. I've, I've read this story in Ibn Yeah, I read this story occur in one of the earliest versions of the Muhammad Sira, and also in uh, Ibn Kathir as well as retold. And I, it's it's very I weird that I, I do think we need to. I need to because you guys know what I'm talking about. I do think people are like. Let me just finish it. So. Uh, the lady that that nur or that light in Abdullah was supposed to represent. I don't know. Apparently, uh, Abdullah was carrying the light that ends up being causing Muhammad. So that woman in the street who wanted to have sex with Abdullah was like, "Oh my God, I need to get this light inside me, right?" Uh, and well, and Abdullah went. What and they called a glow job at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Abdullah instead went and had uh, sex with his wife, and that's how Muhammad was born, right? So this is a. I I do think like, um, Muhammad, if it was based on a real person, what his birth is missing is a miracle birth, and maybe like these things in the surah, these additions later, like Jesus's birth was so miraculous and. So there's so much mythology and fantastic, you know, romanticized narratives around how Jesus came to be. And Muhammad was like, yeah, I'm going to give. But like, so I feel like this is something that whoever wrote the Sirah was feeling like we need to add some. We need, to add, we, we need to sex this up. Like this well, is like, this if is you like boring. If you actually read those same stories, it tells you that that lady saw Muhammad's dad and was like, come to me. And I'm like, no, I'm not good. I'm busy. And he goes and gets married to Amina. And then the stories say that he, after right on the spot there and then, like he married her and he couldn't wait. And it was from that one time that she got pregnant. And they're pretty explicit about saying this. And then he just left for his journey to Syria, Palestine, wherever he was going and died. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty Wait, intense. Like a rabbit. <laughs> what? <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, but so. his miracle birth, talking about that, is, is very interesting where... So we obviously know there's going to be exaggerations there because they say that when he was born, the palaces of Syria were shattered and the terraces fell and, like, the whole necks of the camels in Basra were illuminated by the light coming out of Muhammad's mother's vagina and it was just a bizarre like yeah you read the you read the stories they're like there was a light coming out of her vagina as Muhammad came out the light came with him and illuminated the castles of Syria <laughs> Susanna that's an idea for blas blasphemous art <laughs> Muhammad's birth 
we should okay we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make okay yeah you guys away. take that offline please yeah <laughs> all right let's go on but anyways yeah so these kind of narrations are there and then you know like uh obviously muhammad when he came out now out of all of these we have few things that are told to us as soon as muhammad's mother gets pregnant she says that she starts seeing these flashes of lights and hearing voices and stuff and that's very weird and then she reports that this was a very very light pregnancy as in like a, she didn't feel it much and one thing she herself apparently this is a class authentic by uh, certain scholars and actually a few muftis give a fatwa about this too that muhammad's own mother says i'll actually read it to you guys that uh, when he came out he did not come out like a regular newborn he came out on his hands with his head raised towards the heaven so she even uh, narrates that it's not a normal birth and what's indicative is here that his like newborns can't really lift their heads up so why is his head raised towards the sky again it's a bit speculative to say what it was it could be facial presentation birth and whatnot and then they mentioned two other things right next to it is his umbilical cord was cut off and another thing mentioned right away with it is that he was born uh, without a foreskin and that is a possible he was born pre-circumcised yeah <laughs> now people do have like their suspicions like some some people say it's not authentic but uh, ibn kasir sira states and many actually found a whole paper about this where that's right uh, they say that yes many scholars in fact do hold that muhammad was born circumcised and without with his umbilical cord severed mm-hmm. okay so this is a cord- so in islamic um what they call scholarship do they say who was the witness for this amina or was the other people well there was like a couple of ladies with her helping her Okay, so here's a here's some holes in the narrative because if if this was something that people were um, talking about, that the idea of Muhammad being a prophet wouldn't be a shock. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you guys, sorry, I can't. This is, this is a very serious topic, I know. But okay, anyway, go on. Okay, that's yeah. okay. It's okay. No, you guys are, yeah, I know you guys are. So, like, anyways, you know. <laughs> this exact point of like uh, Muhammad being born uh, without foreskin was brought up by later scholars. No, 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 had... wait, wait. I want to go back to this point. Okay, so here's the thing when Muhammad uh, announced his prophethood, he and here's the thing Muhammad knew these stories, like mm-hmm. he he must have heard of them, right? This is this is what I'm saying. Like, these people who wrote these stories they didn't know how to write stories because when he heard Gabriel, right? When he first, when he heard the first revelation and he's like, yeah, you're a prophet, you know, you're, 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 you're a prophet, Harry. No, like Muhammad. When, when Gabriel came with the revelation and everything, uh, he was like, he was like, I'm going crazy. And he tried to commit suicide, right? Mm-hmm. But the, but given all these stories in his childhood, right? Given that his m- m- mother, like, yeah, I was I was lights shooting out of my vagina, um, and, <laughs> and given, <laughs> given, <laughs> guys, please given, be serious. You were, you were burned, circumcised. 
given that we had angel when you were a kid, there were angels that come and cut open your chest and took cleanse your chest and all of that. Muhammad should have been like, "Oh yeah, I was expecting this to happen, right?" Like this doesn't fit the narrative. Like why was Muhammad so shocked that an angel like, "Oh my God, I'm going crazy. Why am I pro? Am I a prophet? Like why? I'm uh, why am I hearing voices?" Shouldn't have given all this background. Not only he should have been like, "Where were you? Like why? Why? What did this? What took you so long? Yeah, what, th until th I'm forty. Yeah, go on. This is the thing that goes to your whole allegation, Armin, that all of this is really mythology is because it's the same, like these things just don't make sense. Like the whole idea that, you know, Muhammad, I you mean, think? you know, well, with Shias, like, you know, we're told that when Ali Akbar, his grandson was born and he knew he was going to be sacrificed in Karbala, right? Then he just saw him the day he was born and then Muhammad started crying. He's like, he will eventually die in war. He's like, well, you know, they they knew all of this. Stuff. Like, 40 years later, he's absolutely shocked that, okay, why is Gabriel coming to me? And then... When like, he and he, thought, he thought he was crazy. Why am I hearing voices? Like, is this, like, really crazier than like, all dude, the stories that you heard about your childhood? Like, like Muhammad, as a child, was told, yeah, I was... Yeah, like, I was... You were born without, without a foreskin, and your chest was cut open by two angels and washed in snow... And, and now you're like, am I crazy for hearing voices? Like, I'm going, am I crazy for hearing voices? Like, is this really crazier than everything else that has happened to you before? <laughs> this makes no sense, anyways. <laughs> but yeah, let's go on. All right, where were we? And foreskin, we were at the foreskin. Okay, yeah. So uh, the foreskin thing is so. I'm hearing it's called it. Called. Yeah, me too. I heard it. Can you still hear? No, it's good. Oh, all right. So the apostia point is that apostia is a recessive genetic trait that normally only manifests in inbreeding. <laughs> so this okay. is actually studied. You can find articles about it. Again, do, do not show any of those articles on screen due to obviously the sensitivity of the topic that, you know, we're talking about genitals and defects and those. Uh, but they do mention that this has actually been studied and it's a because of endogamy so if you have cousin marriages it's actually most of the cases in fact almost all of the cases occur due to cousin marriages so those people that propagated this idea that muhammad was born without a foreskin at first could be trying to make him seem more pure from a jewish or judaic perspective but then some later scholars like a few four five centuries later actually caught on and they've written in their books that this is actually not a good sign but in fact is a defective sign. And that does not indicate that the prophet was healthy. The Muslim scholars, therefore, some of them said, this is the reason we're rejecting this story. So it's a fascinating side story, just to note that his even his birth has this controversy around it. Wait, some, you're telling me that people actually can be born without a foreskin? Yeah, it's a, it's a medical condition. Yeah, there's and, a, and it's not a phimosis? Or is that no, no, phimosis is when your foreskin is too tight. Yeah. So but maybe like people it. misinterpreted it. No, oh it's called com complete propitial agenesis. So that's basically, uh, you know, you just don't have it. It never forms embryologically. But there are, there are other sort of associated um, congenital anomalies that, that happen with it. It doesn't always happen in isolation. But yeah, it, it can happen. Fascinating. Yeah. And here, like, it's, I'll just read out to you what it says on PubMed. Posse is a very rare congenital abnormality in which the prepuce is missing. And yeah, that's that's about it. That should be clear enough. 
it's it's very interesting though. They did genetic studies for it now in in a few countries, and they found the genes responsible. And they kept finding one common correlation was cousin marriages. And so that was an interesting thing that if that is the case, that adds to maybe why Muhammad, if if this apostia thing is true, that might be indicating that okay, there was because his mother and his father were actually cousins, but one I think second cousins, I believe. Because they're grandfathers or brothers or something like that. So they yeah, were still in a, just for a little detail. It's a, you know not everything that is hereditary that you inherit is also congenital. Mm. Congenital can be something that's de novo that happens for the first time. There's a mutation, whatever. Um, so you have lack of a foreskin that happens that way as well. Um, but then you have a hereditary condition which is apostia. So this is something that. Um, we can it can run in families as a recessive trait, a potentially recessive trait or a defect. I mean, who knows? But anyway, so let's let's move past the foreskin. <laughs> so, he, so he had this uh, birth that was uh, Wait, very actually, interesting and unusual. Actually, let's not move past the foreskin. I I I, do, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know about uh, the fact that um, Herac Heracles, Emperor Heracles of Byzantine right mm -hmm. he had a vision about this army of the circumcised people <laughs> you have have you guys heard about the army of her the circumcised people okay so her, um, the idf her? okay sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay. no 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 so um, wait let me actually look this up yeah it was heracles yes it was heracles that he was like also like um um, astrologist or whatever he was like supposed to know his stuff he was well learned and all that crap um, in you know and he basically looked at the stars and he saw that his um, armies will be defeated by the armies of the circumcised people oh. and um, he thought well this is about the Jewish people we're talking Jewish people right no, so it's like yeah so Heracles basically mentioned that Based on different versions of the story, based on the uh, Islamic version, there's there's Latin versions of the story, and then, then there's Arabic versions of the story. The Arabic version of the story, Heracles basically goes and find, um, I, ca I can't say it here, finds the Jews and basically stops them from living. I'm not going to say the word because I don't know if YouTube's going to get like bothered. Um, but then he meets Abu Sufyan. And he's like, hey, wait, you guys are not Jewish and you guys are circumcised as well. And he realized, like, wait, these people are going to defeat me. Uh, and he's Oopsie. like, he talks. Yeah, he's going to talk. He talks to Abu Sufyan. I don't know what Abu Sufyan was doing in Rome at that time, probably trading or something. And Abu Sufyan talks to him about Muhammad. And he starts questioning about him about this Muhammad. And he's like, oh, my God, I, I killed the wrong people. These uh -oh. are the people. Like at that time, the Arabs, you know, it was these people who are going to come and defeat the Byzantine Empire, yeah. right? Anyways. That's a, yeah, that's fascinating on this one. But yeah, so so really, let's let's go on to the yeah. I, I, so he had an interesting birth. There's all these you know weird things about his birth, um, but you know later on, I think so. What's interesting to me, Gondel, is that this is you know we've talked about this before, is that this is a the two things that stand out to me. First of all. Um, he was exposed to a tremendous amount of death right in his childhood. So his father died before he was born. It's fine. He's born fatherless. Um, and then he sent off his own mother, sends him away to a wet nurse. He's raised by her. 
uh, in his younger years. And then he comes back to his mom. And then his mom dies when he's how old? About four to six. About four because to eight. we don't know which calendar, like the lunar calendar, and you know, there's a variance ah. in update. Yeah. Right. So six, he's four to six. So there's years old. another thing that happened in the middle was so his mom forcefully almost gave him away after being rejected 10 times. She still gives him away. Two years later, when they're done breastfeeding him, as expected, Halima, the wet nurse, comes and returns Muhammad to Muhammad's real mom. And she says, oh, you know, this kid has brought us so many blessings. Now, the Islamic literature says that they brought Muhammad back, but then apparently they were somehow able to convince her mom to give it, the child back to them for another two, three years or something. Yeah, the sheep kept giving so much milk. And... Exactly. Now, when, this is an Islamic way of justifying the story. You know, the Prophet's presence was blessing the sheep there, whatever. But yeah. Yeah, from they my were out in the desert, they were, they were like, they were herding sheep, right? I mean, this was basically exactly. that time. So it was a very sort of separate, sort of desolate place from the, from the city. So, yeah. So, the, yeah, it, uh, what we were told as kids is that this is the way that the people in the city in Mecca made sure that their children grow up tough and understand the way of the desert, right? So you go and give your kids away to the nomads and outside the outside the city and that's, you raise them and the kids grow up in a tough environment. Instead of being grown in the city, become like city boys, city like, like become <laughs> yeah. this like, uh, they learn how to, the way of life. Yeah, it's, like, it's like the Compton yeah. of the Hijaz province. Of the, of the Hijaz province. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason that the Islamic <laughs> books give. But after the two years, then the mom suddenly gives Muhammad away again. Another reason that could be, again, she wasn't doing that well financially because she was still a single <laughs> parent. Or she, hmm? maybe she just didn't like him. Maybe yeah, or maybe she was just a giving bad the kid mother, away, which is weird. That you just keep, not a good mom. just keep giving your little infant away who you've barely right. spent any time with. Why, and what can you blame her? Can, she he he shut like lights out of her vagina. She was freaked out. She was freaked out. Okay, wait, wait, hold on. It's not just that. Like the the whole point of this isn't that you know we can't speculate why his mom kicked on. Maybe she wasn't financially well off. True. She's like, I can't take care of this kid. I want the best of him. I'll send him to places where he's cared for, nurtured, and everything. Mm -hmm. But from the kid's perspective, exactly. It's your mom giving you away over and over and over again. That's what it is from the kid's perspective. Now, when he was there, away from his mother, the incident of his chest splitting happened, right? Where like his, he says that he's there and he sees these two angels in one version and another version, these two birds come up to him. They seize him and throw him on the ground and then they play with his belly. Now, why is this very significant? They cut open his belly. Yeah, they cut open his belly up no, to his I heard the story, but you just, you just, you, the way you describe it was completely different from what I've heard of the story many times. <laughs> it was before. almost hot. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what? Ali, stop. Okay. Oh my God. So, yeah, what ends up happening no, is those angels come, they play with Muhammad's thing, they wash his heart, and then they put, in some versions, they weigh Muhammad against a bunch of people on a scale and Muhammad looks up, sees a thousand people covering the sky. Then they sue Muhammad's chest back up and fly away. One significant detail that stands out is something called epigastric risings, the fluttering in the stomach. This aura 
is so phenomenal and so common in temporal epileptic patients that Dr. Dede Kurkut in his book, Life Alert, explains this briefly. And he brings cases, case studies of actual patients experiencing the exact same type of epigastric rising before their own seizures. So here he's writing, in this regard, we can look at the first apparent epileptic seizure that Muhammad suffered. His mother, Amina, had given him into the care of a nurse. When he was about 40 years old, uh, four years old, he fell suddenly down in a field, shouting that two men were splitting open his belly and stirring it up. What we see here is an obvious complex partial seizure episode with a combined visual hallucination and a visceral abdominal sensation of pain. He goes on to describe that why this, this happens and stuff, but he also brings out uh, actual case studies of people who've experienced the same thing. And he says on page 36, uh, so he doesn't name the patients due to you know confidentiality and stuff. And in the even in the studies, they appear with change changed names. He said that Mr. B had seizures with a feeling of flushing in his epigastric region. His head turned to the right side. Walking alone, he suddenly felt God's reality. He had seizures of visions where a book appeared before him. Later in hospital, he made an attempt at suicide. He completely believed in the validity of everything he had seen. He considered he was God's chosen instrument. It's That's fascinating. Oh my fascinating. God. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Another mm -hmm. one. Now, this one's about a child about Muhammad's age. Uh, Mr. C had seizures from the age of four, the same age as Muhammad. The aura consisted of a flutter in his stomach. He was in an airplane. He was flying over France. He felt the power of God was on him, and he saw angels with their harps. His EEG showed a spike focus in the right temporal lobe. Wow. Uh, there's so many other ones that he goes where uh, this one person, later she heard the sound of a church bell and then she heard a voice, thy father has made the whole go in peace. And then she admitted to hearing the voice again and again. But uh, anyways, these were just a few that words. That sounds like actually... Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc heard um, the God, God speaking to her in Bill. A bell is a very common aura. Chel yeah, okay, okay. But just, just a couple of cases where you can bring out that children at Muhammad's age. There's another one where I read from, that this was a journal I found from 1920 from Harvey Cushing, who was a very famous neurosurgeon. And he records that he had a patient who was about the same age, four years old. And he would have a white, a person dressed in white, literally, come to him and help him shy his, tie his shoelaces. So this is something so interesting. We see like again and again uh, that people like this, they have the same uh, seizures, even uh, despite being centuries apart, their experiences are quite similar because again, at the end of the day, the organ and the pathways are similar. So the discharges are similar. And a lot of the time this contextualized by the culture there. And so if you're a Christian, you see St. Mary and all those people. And if you're Arab, you'll hear the jinns or whatever background you come from. So it's because your brain is trying to make a, create its own story to make it make sense. Exactly. So, can I provide an alternative 
narrative mm -hmm. here. Right, have you guys seen The Life of Pi? I've yeah. read the book. The book too, yeah. Okay, so I don't, I don't know if this is accurate or not because, uh, by the way, spoiler alert, uh, my understanding of the ending, uh, if I, this was a long time ago, is that it, he had the, the main uh, person in the story had a traumatic experiences that he re, re changed the memory of it so that he could deal with the what actually happened on that boat right he basically came up with a myth a, a story that so that he his brain could deal with it because what actually happened was so devastating and so taboo and so disgusting that that's how he managed to live with that by retelling the story, coming up with a myth about what actually happened. Is he that almost completely disassociated with that. What actually happened? All right. One so, of one of the yeah. narrations, just on a side note, mentions that he actually Muhammad has an outer body experience where he's standing and seeing himself with mm -hmm. the angels doing this surgery on him, which is an, an interesting detail mentioned. What if what if if I was writing like fan fiction or an alternative <clears throat> narrative, I would say like what if he was like molested or was like attacked mm -hmm. by two men and basically sexually harassed, and this is what his brain came up with to fill in well, the gap because it was too traumatic. Well, well the thing is, if that's true, then what his brain came up with is strikingly similar to what we now know of temporal lobe epilepsy which is associated with thinking that you were a prophet and having all of these sort of religious delusions of grandeur. So, I mean, that's a, this I mean, we have, we have other thing. We have, yeah, but we also have other examples of like in the previous episode, we discussed him meeting people in his real life and thinking that there he's talking to a great Gabriel, right? And yeah. people are like, this is not Gabriel. This is a real person. This is this guy in front of you. And like, and he thought he was talking to Gabriel. Um, so, like it wouldn't be unlike other stories about Muhammad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can't rule it out, but like, I think that the fact that this description is in uh, sort of Islamic sources and it also too similar. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very similar to, you know, what we now know. That's, that's actually what a lot more. It's, it's pretty compelling. I wasn't saying, I wasn't saying my, my alternative story is a compelling at all. I was just, Providing fan fiction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so yeah, yeah no, we're, we're done with that. We're done with that. Norman. Taking so, a little creative license. Another another thing I wanted to mention about the epigastric sensations was, so we have this one other person, San Brigida. She lived 600 years after Muhammad or something. And they wrote a paper about her possibly suffering from temporal epilepsy. And they noticed that one of her common auras was that... Uh, she would uh, she frequently experienced repetitive movements in the epigastric region described as movements like from an unborn baby but under her heart and these movements became more prominent the deeper brigida uh, prayed and yeah. this this person's story is fascinating if you do read the paper um she he, she wasn't convinced that she's a prophet. Firstly, she had her experience at first nine, then it went dormant. It rose up again at 40, exactly the age of Muhammad. She had her big experiences. She didn't believe that she's actually a prophetess or talking to God. She thought she's going crazy. Then her friend Matthias convinced her that she's actually talking to God. And then from then on, her delusion took place. If you read the paper, like if you read the descriptions of what she saw about hell, 
matches the Quran. It almost feels like I'm reading the Quranic verses translations to you. She frequently gave descriptions of hell. Her descriptions are shocking and macabre. Demon, demons, vomit, venom of violent colors, hideous bodies pass by. The demons have tridents and claws which they plunge into the heart, stomachs, and feet of victims. They scream like lunatics. One devil ravaged a couple that had married without the church's ordination so that in the end everything looked like a ball. The demon's cat soul stabbed them and then crushed them between their teeth. Wow. Yeah. And these are all descriptions like, you know, you've heard when Muhammad went on the mirage and night journey, he saw these people's heads being crushed by rocks over and over again and being thrown. And then the Quran said they drink pus and they're put in hooks and stuff. It's very similar to what happened. It's also very similar to Venom for Marvel. <laughs> for Marvel, yeah. So I, I, you know, so I know you probably have loads of other examples mm -hmm. of this description, yeah. but, but let's you know for the interest of uh, this, let's move on to the next. Yeah, let's move on. So, 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 so this is interesting. So, so far, what we have is we have this like really quirky kind of birth, right? We have, um, you know, uh, dead father. Mother keeps on giving him away. Comes back. She gives him away again. Then he, finally, when he comes back, <laughs> she dies when he's very, very young, and then he's given over to his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. Mm -hmm. And after just a few years, like, like two years, I think, yeah. his grandfather dies too. Mm -hmm. So everyone who is he's raised by is either kind of giving him away and outsourcing him. Uh, and uh, the, the other people, like when he actually sticks around with them for a little bit, they just died. He's seen all of this stuff happen before he even turns 10. Exactly. Right. And at 10 years of age, he has another incident where the two angels come back and split his chest open again and wash it again. Wait, what? Jesus, these yeah. angels, man. This Wait, happened four times. Wait, I only heard about the first time. No, it happened the one time when he was young with his uh, nurse. And that's one of the reasons she immediately returned him because her mother's, her uh, wet nurse's reaction to Muhammad having the, his chest split open was they thought he's going nuts. He actually went insane. And the words they used were that he was afflicted with some side of insanity and they returned, returned him. Now here's the funny bit. He's having panic attacks actually. Yeah, he but might be. He's a poor kid, right? He's yeah. having all these issues. So he's returned to his mother, but they suspect he's had like demon possession. When they're telling this to his mom, his mom is not surprised. And the wording in the book says she didn't appear shocked. And the reasoning she gives, she literally, Armin, I'm not kidding you. She said that when I gave birth to him, lights came out of me. So he couldn't go crazy. She actually just gave that reason. Wow. Yeah. Take this so the lights like flashing? demon baby away from me. <laughs> it was a rape. We could hang Amina on top of a like a club or something. <laughs> Wait, when his chest was split open four times, was it to make him masoom every time or only like the yeah. first time? So the, the rationalizations go that the first time was so that any affliction or the, you know, his. Uh, tendencies to do bad things will be removed till he gets to the age of adolescence at the age of 10 when it was done it was to preserve him in his teenagers right mm -hmm. so for and each stage of development he exactly. needs to re up on being masoom okay <laughs> now the third time now wow. this is not known as well one 
the third time it happened was when the first revelation was given to him. So you know the whole incident where he says, Iqra bismirabbika, read in the name of that Lord. It was accompanied not just by him choking, but by his chest also being again split and washed mm -hmm. by the angel. Wow. Yeah, so I have I said he's, three fatwas for these. Mm. Wait, is this fatwas or sirahs? So these are from the sirahs, but they are like uh, Islamic websites where muftis are explaining and claiming these. That this actually happened four times. The fourth time, it repeated again when Muhammad was going on the night journey to the Isra and Miraj, where before the Burak came to him, he had his chest opened again and washed his heart. And then the angel appeared with the whole. So, wait, so that means, are you suggesting that you can't find this explicitly written inside the Sirah? This is modern interpretations by scholars, new fatwas by modern scholars of the Sirah? Or do no, no. You, I, yeah, no. These are in the Sirahs. It's just that the sources are obscured, that they are not available. So, just to mm -hmm. add, add credence to it, Mm -hmm. I can locate the the stories myself, but I have scholars coding these sources, mm. and they're calling it authentic. That's it, which sir, are we talking about Ibn Nisab or Here, like other? No, yeah, like so, just just want no. You don't don't need to show me. Just wanted to know like the source is is this like uh, like obscure s s sources or is that like the main Ibn Nisab? No, no, it's, by it's from the earliest sources. Yeah. Okay, so it's mm -hmm. as written by Isham, Ibn Hisham. Um, perhaps, and then some of them, their recension to Tabari, that was like a ninth century, 10th century scholar. So some mm -hmm. of Ibn Hisham came through him, so some of them are there. So just to be totally honest with everybody, um, Muslims don't completely accept everything in the Sirah, right? Like, there's no Islamic school of thought, whether Shia or Sunni, that buys into the Sirah wholesale. Like the only way that they the, the things that they put their stamp of approval on um, is Sahih Hadith. They do look at the Sirah and they, you know, they, you know, for references and maybe to see what was right. You know, but they don't mm -hmm. accept, like, just because something is in the Sirah, that doesn't mean that it's fully part of the Islamic canon, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, is, that, is, is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, so you had your hands up. Well, on a different note, I was just sitting here thinking about all of these um, broken or not even broken, just ripped out from underneath him relationships in early childhood, even from basically his infancy. I mean, this just has like attachment disorder written all over it. Th that's a part of it that I'm actually most interested in. It shows up in the Quran a lot, actually. If you yeah. notice that the first little bit of fixation of his revelatory period in the chronology, how it was revealed, is constantly we found you as an orphan and we found you as a person in need and we helped you. So we keep referencing why does the Quran overly emphasize about orphan rights or eating the wealth of the orphan is like eating fire in your own belly. But it doesn't use these extreme uh, examples to describe other forms of transgressions that it could. So we see this ideation about Muhammad talking about the hardships he might have experienced and he's projecting those through his revelation. What's a, what's a daddy figure, right? Like, I mean, like you don't have and a mom, dad, you know, you find God. Like it's it's really, I mean, that that's, might be a little simplistic and speculative, but so, so I find that that part of it really interesting. I also find the part that um, 
when he was young, I mean, he didn't really have any male figures around him until Abdul Muttalib, right? So he had Halima, and then occasionally he had his mom on and off. Um, and it's, to me, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting how the earlier part of his life and his marriage to Khadija might have been shaped by that too, because uh, Khadija was also, like, you know, if you look at it, if, if there's a maternal figure, right, this is going to make, you know, all the people who think that Muhammad is the first feminist, this is going to make them salivate because, um, like, this is a woman who's 15 years older than him. He's a virgin. She's not a virgin. She's widowed. Um, and she already has kids. Uh, she okay, is no. boss. She's rich. She's rich, yeah. And Muhammad was refused a couple of times by other women. Well, do you know the story of how they got married in the earliest books about her getting her father drunk? Yeah, yeah but wait, wait, let me, wait let come me, again? Wait, 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 hold on. Let me, let me we'll just go back what? to that. No, okay. Let me go back to that. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, she's rich. She is his employer. She pays his salary. She sends him off to Damascus and everything to do trade and, and work for her. Somebody and contact she, HR. And she proposes to him. Right, rather than the other way around, and and he accepts, and and she's his financial support as well. So it's actually exactly the opposite, and uh, you know, of when of the woman staying at home and all that stuff. Now, at, at the moment, and the whole time he's married to her, he never marries anybody else. And then as soon as she dies, you know, he starts like he starts really hitting it, right, like with all the other uh, the other women. Yeah, and he total U turn. But the, but the thing is, I think that that's that I think that aspect of it, the fact that that's in Islamic history is really interesting his exposure to women as his only sort of nurturing and raising source in the beginning his lack of a proper feeling the absence of his mom like so good. you're saying he married khadija because he was looking for a mommy figure he had mommy yeah. issues i no. well i mean is it impossible it's in the exact opposite those are the kinds of people who do it i mean yeah go on suzanne well, I don't know how familiar you guys are with um Bulby's like attachment theory, but oh, I have the whole like, book on it. A oh, fantastic um, three marriage. So obviously, there's like diff many different types of attachment style in early childhood. Um, I I'm just gonna venture a guess that uh, he would be a very uh, <laughs> disorganized attachment style, yeah. um, which is characterized in adulthood with a lot of um, interpersonal problems, right? And uh, one of which is like uh, characterized by low trust in self, low trust in others, kind of an inability to um, formulate secure attachments in adulthood, and also um, possibly a lot of anxiety around separation. And um, there's another psychologist, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but talks about how, especially in developmental psychology, one of humankind's like ultimate trials is or what characterizes our lives is our ability to become securely attached to something and ultimately whatever we are attached to we will lose that we will be separated from it so then we're characterized by how we deal with that separation um is is a kind of a disorganized attachment style characterized in our understanding of muhammad's adult life and his, his interpersonal relationships and how he trust others or um uh create relationships within <clears throat> i yeah. would say that's, that's a very good point that you raised uh, like his uh, adulthood so we constantly told that 
he didn't have an, a lot of friends. He was actually very lonely, especially proceeding up to his revelation a few years, up to a few months, perhaps. He was literally, uh, the book, The Sealed Nectar literally says in some other books, he loved nothing more than being alone and he would just stay in the cave for a month at a time. He would come once a week or once a month, take some dates some water and just disappear for a whole month. Then he'd hang out with poor people. In the hadiths, you notice that he's always hanging out with poor people and whatnot. And he has this weird sort of personality that he shows. <clears throat> we'll get to that more later on. And uh, Hey, yeah, I, I, I have a question, actually. I, I remember when I was like a loner um, during my uh, teenage years and everybody thought I was weird some way. I justified that by thinking like, because every, like people thought there was something wrong with me. I kind of justified it by thinking, you know what, there's something wrong with all of them, right? Is that a common reaction to people feeling like you're a weirdo by you responding to that by thinking that everybody, there's, there's something wrong with the whole world and there's nothing wrong with me? Like maybe that's that's another way to, maybe Muhammad thought like, I need to fix everything. The whole world is corrupted or something like that. Is that common? Yeah, that in fact, like that obsession, the, okay, so in, when you see religious conversion in people suffering from certain disorders like temporal epilepsy or schizophrenia, they actually get very, very ultra attached to their delusions. And if you try to convince them that, oh, maybe you are actually seeing the angels, you are enabling their delusion to take on another level. You're basically making it pathological. That's right. That, that's actually why uh, for schizophrenia, psychotherapy is contraindicated or at least certain types of it like the conventional psychotherapy is contraindicated you do not do talk therapy with schizophrenics because it just bolsters their delusions it makes them the paranoid ones become even more paranoid they become even more convinced of their delusions exactly and that's what we see in muhammad's own initial phase too is he first didn't believe it but once you convince them then they can't shake it off like in even in the book uh, this book he brings cases upon cases of people who would see this grand vision and then be confused because they have, you know, the post confusion, like what the hell just happened? And then Vivius Ramachandran explains in his clips that over time, their left hemisphere starts to confabulate. Like, okay, I have to make sense of this. So the only way this, it makes sense that I saw a figure is actually me being visited by a being from another dimension, right? Or being divine or an angel, you know? So... But, but when you convince them, they are so obsessed that you will offer them anything they just would not let go. And they become very scrupulous in nature. And they become a very st a sticky personality. I mean, I mean, well, I, I, okay, you guys. No, I mean, it, it's difficult, especially when other people are validating it around you, either through ignorance or for whatever reason, because it's decimating that individual's ability to reality test. No. Because when we have delusions or when I have anxiety, my brain is telling me things about myself or about other people. I have to ask other people, how much is what I'm feeling actually validated in reality? And people usually come back to me and say, no, it's not really reflected in, you know, what's real. And so that's one of the ways that, you know, and through CBT, I've been taught to reality test. But if other people are just ripping that ability out from underneath you, you're going to think that what you're thinking is real and validated. <clears throat> The the point we see where this this switch happens is beautifully preserved in in the Sira literature, in a few different occasions, right? 
So initially, obviously, when Muhammad's seizure frequency increased near his his initial uh, revelation, Muhammad says he's hearing voices and he's scared and his wife knows about it. And she knows this is going on for a while and she notices this. So when Muhammad has gone to the cave all by himself, she on her own accord, out of her own care or fear for her husband's well-being, would go to these people and tell them that, hey, Muhammad's been having this, who she would, out of her own sincerity, suspect that these are the most knowledgeable people to consult. So she'll go to these shaman-like people and ask them, do you think he's crazy or do you think he's going insane? And one of those people was her cousin, Varaka, who was an old blind guy who was translating in some narration says the Bible into Hebrew and Arabic living in Mecca, right? And what ends up happening is he tells Muhammad that ask him if he saw the angel or this being in either light time or during the night time, right? Daytime or nighttime. And then Muhammad says, I hear this voice. Oh, Muhammad, oh, Muhammad. And I get scared and I run away and I feel like I'm going insane. And then the guy then advises him, don't run away. Just turn around. And Muhammad says, once I turned around and I fell down. Now, he then says to uh, Muhammad's wife how to tell the spirit or the vision coming to Muhammad is turn not around a genie. To see, sorry, turn around to see the angel. Yeah, well, what's the voice calling you? Okay, yeah. so he like he never turned back, like the voice. He never turned back to look who's calling him. Yeah, he would. And the one scared. time, the one time that he turned around to look at it, he just collapsed. Yeah, like, when he looked at the angel. Okay, okay. So uh, <clears throat> this should be a movie. <laughs> so Khadija is told how to test if it's an angel or a demon possessing Muhammad. Because leading up to this, Muhammad was having full-blown trembling and whatnot, and he was being exercised in some narrations before the Quran was revealed. So Muhammad comes in one day, and Khadija is like, sit on my lap. And when the angel or whatever you see comes to you, tell me. So he sits in Khadija's lap and then says, Khadija, he's here. I can see it. And then she asked me, point to it. So Muhammad points to the thing. And then Khadija is like, can you see it? Can you see it? And then she takes off her head cover. And in some narration, she exposes more of her body and skin. And then asks Muhammad, can you still see it? And Muhammad says, no, it's gone. And then she says, this is the clutch. If he was a Satan, he would have stayed because the demons stay and watch naked women. But if he's an angel... He left out of shame and modesty from seeing me. And this is mentioned in so many early books that this was a test that Khadija did to convince herself and Muhammad that what he's they saying have is haya. Yeah, angels have haya. <laughs> Wait, but that's like the number one thing you don't do with, say, someone who's a schizophrenic is say, point to where it is. Exactly. It's the number one thing you don't do. It yeah. will screw with someone's mind. Well, that's why we have a slum today. <laughs> you know when you when you were telling me the story when when you said like I, I you know Khadija was telling him point to me where he is. I was imagining like this horror like the dark background with the music like like. <laughs> like some really scary background noise mm. this should be a movie this should become a oh my god wait we should make this a blasphemous art Khadija is coming naked we have blasphemous art I think the here. fact that you can't have imagery of any of this stuff and that's not allowed in Islam has probably helped preserve 
the faith over all these years because if you could actually have imagery of all this stuff like it just sounds wow now, one of the interesting things is the whole guy who told muhammad the cousin of khadija right varaka after khadija had performed her test took him to varaka right and his own suspicion the learned christian guy said in the seer literature that he even suspects Muhammad might be tricked by a devil who's trying to imitate Gabriel and this is common and turns people of sound mind insane like these are his words so even the guy who was initially trying to convince Muhammad he's a prophet that old shaman like guy had his own suspicions at first Wow. Uh, okay, we need to go to a question, patron questions in the live chat mm -hmm. uh, very soon. But before that, um, I do have to say, like, um, if like if this like if we buy into all, any of this story, I could relate. I could completely see why somebody who is hearing voices once they buy into all of this being real, um, the resistance to any of this being fiction would be so. I mean, accepting it that. If you had to choose between, am I a prophet? These are angels. There's something special about me. <clears throat> or you're a crazy person, right? As soon as you go into like maybe accepting that you're special and you're a prophet, having that entire everything about what you're seeing and what you're hearing crushed and being told that not only you're not special, you're broken, is such an uncomfortable reality to have to face that you would go out of your way to not have to face that reality you might go as far as invading all of arabia <laughs> right not well, it's, it's really <laughs> interesting you say that though because with people who experience mania which is different than epilepsy but it does contain psychosis or can't contain psychotic episodes breaks from reality a lot of people who experience or many people who experience mania um, don't like treating it because the actual feelings of mania, because of what it's doing to the chemicals in your brain, make you feel fantastic. You have extreme feelings of grandiosity. And also, I mean, especially in bipolar disorder, you know, then it comes with the crash that comes afterwards. But and there's a lot of impulsivity. There's a lot of other things that are uh, clinically characterized with yeah. it. But a lot of people, um, many bipolar people I've known in my own life, they are not good at um, being uh, keeping fidelity to their treatment schedules. They're not good at taking their mood stabilizers mm. because the feelings they get from mania are so good. And it's the same thing. It's like, I don't want to feel like I need this. I don't want to feel like I'm broken in this way. But that's that's common for a lot of people with yeah, mental illness. They don't want to feel broken. But that the, the grandiosity is what caught my eye and what you were saying. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, a lot of people don't want that to end. The, yeah, that's the thing. And I, I know we're, we're at time right now, but uh, that's a good point because, uh, you know, that, that's the thing with mania. It's, it's, positively euphoric so people will go off their lithium you know do it and they don't have insight like you know how obsessive compulsive yeah. disorder you know what you're doing is irrational if you have schizophrenia you have mania you don't have the insight you don't think what you're doing is abnormal mm -hmm. you think it's all very very real and that's why you have those delusions so it's um and and we should i think the aspects of that that we should discuss and also narcissism 
the narcissism that happens with mm -hmm. uh, any kind of cult leadership and we didn't get a chance to get into that um just before we i just want to continue from susanna's point about the blissfulness that they feel and they want to keep feeling those experiences this is from the seal nectar the award-winning book muhammad when he got the first revelation he had pauses in revelation a few months some say a few years and during that time he would become suicidal because he would long mm -hmm. for the revelation so here it reads uh, meanwhile, the prophet was caught in a sort of depression coupled with astonishment and confusion. In Bukhari, it's recorded that divine inspiration paused for a while, and the prophet became so sad, as we have heard, that he intended several times to throw himself from the top of the mountains. Every time he went up the top of a mountain in order to throw himself down, Angel Gabriel would appear before him and say, O oh, Muhammad, you are indeed... Allah's messenger. Whenever the period of coming of the revelation used to become long, he would do as before, but then Gabriel would appear again and say what he had said before. So what we see is Muhammad would actually he's become... He's depressed that, oh, why is the angel not coming back to me? Yeah, he's he's definitely cycling. Yeah. Cycling. Okay, so you guys are have like nerdy phrases for this. When I <laughs> when I when I first uh, remember when I heard uh, first uh, read this story, my terminology was a toxic relationship with Gabriel. I felt I felt <laughs> bad. I felt really bad for Gabriel. I was like, this is like kind of a like a boyfriend or a girlfriend that mm -hmm. every time you don't go visit, they call like they text you like and say like if you I'm don't come right myself. now. I'm gonna if you don't come right now, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it, I promise. And then like, oh my god. And then you have to show up to their, their like, okay, I'm here. Please don't. Like it's a like Gabriel Gabriel is like I think was forced into making, you know, visiting Muhammad because every time he went every time Muhammad wanted him, just we would just threaten suicide. <laughs> yeah, yeah or, or it sounds like someone with bipolar one. <laughs> like yeah, that's that's I think the thing. Like it's it, it sounds like bipolar one. It may not be. I mean, it could be yeah. a lot of different things. I mean, he could be just cycling. Thing. Milder forms. You've got bipolar too. You've got cyclophobia. There's, there's a lot of other, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, things on that spectrum. But uh, it definitely, it does seem like he's going through these phases of this sort of rich delusions of grandeur, and and uh, then this sort of coming down into this this deep depression. Um, Maybe but, Muhammad was supposed to be a minor prophet, but he was so suicidal that he forced Gabriel and God's hand into making him <laughs> the best of prophets. Well, if you don't make me the last prophet, I'm killing myself. He ended up being very. But you're never gonna love anybody like the way like this is. Promise me, nobody else. The ultimate manipulation. No, people who do have uh, bipolar disorder and who are also sort of also happen to have a good dose of narcissism, they tend to be actually quite successful. They are bipolar disorder is is associated with the higher average IQ levels and intelligence levels. Um, mm -hmm. They are better when you really really believe that you're at the top of the world and other people believe you too. So you can have a lot of cult personalities who tend to have bipolar mm -hmm. disorder. Um, so, yeah. Just wanted to add like the so Doctor Didikurkut mentions the psychosis that shows up in epilepsy. Get, 
can at times mimic the uh, psychosis that shows up in schizophrenia. But he mentioned something very interesting is there's the post-ictal psychosis. And yeah. what we see is we see a frequency of seizure-like activity increase near that big event of Muhammad's first revelation. He has that chest splitting, being choking, can't breathe, comes to his wife running, falling to the ground, trembling and shaking. And then there's about a year or six months or 40 days of no more revelation, right? And then we see him suffering from insomnia, psychotic straight up breaks where he's running up mountains trying to kill himself. And he's hearing angel angelic voices, but they're not the full revelation. He's still seeing and hearing things, but he's not having full-blown seizures, right? So that's something that is a plausible explanation that might have happened to him. But then Dr. Dede Kurkut says that after his seizures, there was a three-year gap. His seizures then started taking off. And then the Hadith say, the revelation came more profusely. So he says, after that, you see his psychosis even gets worse where he keeps to the point where this guy actually became totally engulfed and obsessed with his own delusion at a point. Mm. <clears throat> and he says that the psychosis turns from post-ictal to then inter-ictal psychosis. And at a point it's the psychosis is so persistent that the distinction between inter and post-ictal becomes just for clinical classifications for the doctors. But in fact, you're, these patients are basically having psychosis between seizures and the whole time. And they sometimes spend their whole life, if not treated, living in this seizure-like state, uh, psychotic state, if you know they don't get the so medication. Guys, we, need to, we need to go to patron questions. We have three patron <clears throat> questions in the live chat. Uh, Ghost Bunny saying, uh, um, Susanna had said how to... Okay, Susanna, this is for you. You want to read this? Off-topic question to something Suzanne had said, how do you tell someone that their feelings aren't valid in a certain situation without sounding like you're gaslighting them? Um, how about you ask me that next time on uh, Atheist Republic Q&A? Yeah, yeah. Um, also, also, disclaimer, uh, none of us are, uh, I mean, mental health experts, and you should go seek uh, professional help. That's the main The main number one advice is seek professional help. Yes. Um, okay, Bobo is saying, uh, did Muhammad's uncle mistreat him in childhood because the Quran is super mean to him, right? And Whoa. we don't have any. That's oh, actually well. a very good point. Because huh. once you think about it, Muhammad's uncle, there's a whole chapter dedicated upon cursing Muhammad's uncle. And that specific uncle, you know, was he knew him the whole time growing up. And then also in the biographies we read. Which uncle? Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab, yes, because I thought you were like Abu Talib was pretty good. I'm like, no, I love Abu Talib. Abu Talib is so sweet. He's not Abu Lahab is not like a full uncle either. He's like a half uncle. What about Abu Jahal? Abu Jahal, that's the guy. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. And that that too. Then another thing we notice is in this Sira, we're told that Muhammad was kept closer. And he was very clingy to his uncle, the one that was taking care of him, Ali's dad, right? Yeah. Abu Talib. Muhammad yeah. was apparently super close. And then the wordings go to this extreme that the guy would love Muhammad more than his own kids. And Muhammad would get this preferential treatment. And Muhammad would sit with him on the camel. And all his own kids will be just running around. Muhammad was this like favorite child of his uncle. But could that be a possible retelling of the story from Muhammad's lens, trying to project his own lack of intention and neglect, mm -hmm. that could be a possibility. 
All right, so this question, I, we need to, I think we need to adjust this question. Gospani is saying, with the realization that Muhammad may have been dealing with mental illness, is this helping many people leave Islam? And why are others still hanging on to the religion? Okay, Gospani, I don't think, like, this is why we I had the disclaimer at the beginning. I think realization is a very strong word here, okay? Like, this is all speculation. I don't, like I said, we don't know. I, I mean, I personally don't think any of this even happened. Uh, I don't think it reflects many other people here, but I, I like. I think realization is a strong word. Okay, but anyways, how do we answer this? Well, I, I can. Can I say something on this? I think that um, when it comes to mental illnesses, the fact that we know a lot more about mental illness now, right, is uh, helping people understand some of these cult-like figures, helping people see through them. You know, it's it's like magic, right? When you had magicians in the past, I mean, you've seen what magicians can do right now. You've seen like a David Blaine special and you know exactly how easy it is for someone who doesn't understand that this stuff is just illusion, right? How easy it is for somebody like that to be completely taken with somebody like that and think that they're a prophet, right? I mean, that can happen easily back in the seventh century if someone was able to do those things. Now, um, now we have a real realization. We know that this stuff is uh, these mental illnesses are real. We know delusions are real. We know delusions of grandeur are real. We know that it's really hard to tell them apart. The very definition of a delusion, right? And this is really important. The definition of a delusion is a fixed false belief. And then it says it's part of the definition that cannot be explained by, uh, you know, religious or cultural um, widespread beliefs. So, that does not belong in that category. So they actually have to mention that to differentiate a delusion from religious belief. They have to put it in the definition of the word. So um, that is a realization that people do have. And I don't think they fully connected it to Muhammad, but one of the reasons that religion is kind of dying out, um, you know, the, the faster than ever, is uh, probably because people have these realizations. I don't think I don't think it contributes a lot to people leaving a religion. I think there are factors. There are other factors, but go on. Yeah, there are definitely. But also, there are a lot of people that don't even know the details that Gondal has mentioned, like nearly as much detail as he does. Well, nobody does. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like (laughs) you know, um, so a lot of people just don't know that. And also, even if they did, you know, you can put your own spin on it to rationalize it or make it fit within your religious framework or um, yeah, a lot of people haven't looked in, into it. And, and even if you did know those details, according to Canon, you might not also have the in-depth uh, knowledge of neuroscience and psychology and abnormal psychology to know, Oh, that there's a lot of crossover here, you know? We have modern cult leaders who have we have direct recorded evidence of them actually being con artists and people still follow them in masses. So what yeah. do you think is going to be the effect of trying to show some guy that we don't even know existed or not 1400 years ago if like trying to convince people today that this guy was had mental health issues? Uh, and that'd be the reason why they leave that giant cult. I don't think, th- I mean, this is all interesting, but I don't think this is the main way. I actually, I'll take that back because a lot of Muslims are a lot of, well, a lot of, Muslims, a lot of people are in general are interested in create conspiracies. So maybe if you actually tell them, Hey, there's no evidence for your religion, they would be like, 
not listen to you. But if you tell them, like, let me tell you a story, you know, they might be like, ooh, this is interesting. So actually, maybe the interest factor might get, like, even if we have left, less evidence for this, for why Islam is nonsense, then better ways of tackling Islam, because of how interesting this is, we might mm -hmm. actually get some people to listen. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so I, I You're not know. wrong. You're yeah, not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Anyway, but Ali yeah. wanted to talk about the narcissism mm -hmm. aspect a little bit, right? Well, we need to yeah. end this. Well, we gotta, we gotta end this right now. But uh, Daniel, where yeah. can people find you? Yeah, uh, you can find me on my Twitter account. It's uh, the Twitter handle is xgondolx, or my Facebook account Abdullah Gondol. And I am uh, I make videos or do the two Abdullah show on Abdullah Samir's channel. Uh, we might be doing an episode this weekend as well. I'm also working on this documentary on uh, the mental health of Muhammad in which we'll be taking a an extremely deep dive into his life before prophethood, during and after and how he died and mm -hmm. trying to analyze him from a neurological perspective. Uh, Ali will be there and a few other people. Uh, the preview I've already released for that. And uh, yeah. I have a question. Is mm -hmm. any chance that you and Abdullah Samir are ever going to go do a deeper dive into looking into making content about the historicity of Muhammad and the early caliphs? Um, it's not my area of expertise, but I do want to us uh, eventually get into like there's this Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphate, and there's this a pocket of 100 or 150 years where there's next to nothing. We know yes. absolutely nothing, right? So there is lots. We do to have learn. something, but yeah, something, but not but very, little. very little. Yeah, very little. Yeah, um, and I would, I would definitely, I need to learn. Like I have been watching videos of this uh, YouTuber called, I think it's called Mamluk. He's making some good videos, researching it. I want to get that book uh, from Professor Sean Anthony, mm -hmm. Muhammad and the Empires of Faith, I believe. Yes, yes, oh yes. I was, I, I just recently showed that to Susanna. I was like, I need that. Um, it's. It's fascinating, and um, I, actually, I like that person because uh, Sean Anthony is somebody who has a revisionist view of Islamic history, but he's not like, but less revisionist. Like he's not like aggressively trying to say everything. There's nothing there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. if you look at the like the people that are getting the most attention are these anti-Islamic Christian content creators, and you know, some of them uh, are people who accuse Ali of being a secret jihadi. So I don't <laughs> think that the most, like, Whoa, I don't, I don't, I don't think that the most trustworthy sources, right? Um, you know, I don't know. Book? Yeah, but but I, yeah. I'm sensing a little hidden Shia agenda from this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, I don't no, know. No, but, no, but, but Sean Anthony, like Sean Anthony, is not only. Look uh, like if somebody who is looking at it honestly and he's like doesn't have an anti-Islam like an anti-Islam mm. agenda, like he's like a gen like a genuine scholar that is just looking at everything objectively. He's also very optimistic about what we could potentially know without trying to make what we potentially know about Muhammad match what Muslims say and without completely dismissing Islamic sources because he does just because he doesn't trust everything he sees, he does think that Islamic sources must reflect something that actually happened, right? Mm -hmm. So, and he's very optimistic about going forward, doing scholarly work, what can we find out instead of 
being aggressively biased and you're trying to making it Muhammad completely like completely throwing it out you know what i mean like he's more of like this is the this is the people i'm talking about robert spencer's book right yeah. i read this book did muhammad did muhammad exist like i like it because i i i like it because it's the only book right now that it summarizes everything but it's very very biased and you could just see that there's an agenda here like like the way that some things are highlighted and other things are not highlighted it's not i mean it, re it refers to scholarly work but is selective and it's put its own spin on it because of a you know it has a conclusion that it's trying to get to but sean anthony is the scholar that i was looking for for a long time because this is a person without any agenda other than trying to figure out the truth susanna oh i was just thinking i know we ran out of time for today but um i would love to do an episode that's just looking at muhammad as an authoritarian cult leader because I'm pretty knowledgeable about cult structure. Yeah. And, um, and, and like when I start, cause I learned about that before ever really learning about Islam, the depth that I am now familiar with it. And then I started to learn about Islam, especially like Salafism is fits all the criteria of a destructive cult. Like, so if you take Islam in its, in its entirety, very seriously and literally, like it is, precisely a very destructive cult format mm -hmm. uh and so that'd be really fun to talk about yeah, yeah. I, so i think that uh with gondol um i'm gonna have to force you to come back here uh, <laughs> yes yeah, to discuss sure. that because i wanted to get into that that's what we were saying about the malignant mm -hmm. narcissism. yeah uh, there might be no compulsion in islam but but yeah, just so we don't have, you could do like a few <laughs> few episodes on just his life and the actions, like what he did, for example, like the way he would treat. So him marrying his adopted son's wife, right? There is an literal identical case in our modern times by Vane Bent, who started an apocalyptic cult called the End of Times Church. Something it's a documentary on YouTube. That guy said that he was one day sitting and he fell to the ground, fainted. And then God told him to go consummate with his actual son's wife, not his oh adopted my. son's wife. So he got up smiling from there and then told to the lady. And he actually ended up consummating with his daughter-in-law, exactly like Muhammad. Mm. It's identical almost, yeah. And yeah, that, that same story, guy- Actually, with, that story has- um, theological consequences beyond most muslims and it's muslim realize like the whole taboo. yeah it's yeah it's it's not just adoption taboo that story about muhammad marrying uh zainab uh his adopted son's wife it's more about emphasizing how muhammad is the seal of the prophet i don't know if most people recognize the connection between mm. muhammad being the end of prophets and but the also whole doesn't it normalize cousin marriage no, it's not about any of that. A lot of people think like, because a, a lot of people think that Muhammad being embarrassed about that story is because of his lust for Zainab. It's not about that. It's about him rejecting God, what God, had, the reason why Muhammad was embarrassed was because he rejected what God wanted for him, right? The reason why that story is very significant is to say Muhammad had no son because Islam is a traditionally Jewish religion and the whole idea of prophethood comes from heredity. 
And this was supposed to be the whole thing that they were trying to make sure that Zaid, this story was supposed to signify that Zaid was not Muhammad's son because these are people who were trying to avoid something like Shiaism happening, right? Because eventually it didn't go through, like they were trying to cut Zayd out from his heredity, but the Shias redid that by making it go through Fatima instead. Yeah. That's right? a, I, the yeah. heredity continued through Muhammad, through Fatima, and then the Imams. This is, was supposed to be something to stop stop it at Muhammad. Right, the seal of the... But that's actually really interesting because all of his other sons died in infancy, right? Actually, right. one of them is said to have lived... Uh, right. One of them was old enough to ride horses. One of them. Yeah. And it was his death right before the beginning of Prophet or two, that could have been an extra traumatic event that would have triggered the onset of all this. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's fascinating. Okay. Anyway, uh, guys, we got, you know, we got to wrap it up here and then God will give you back. There's some interesting episodes coming up. We're going to have Mariam Namazi here. Mariam Namazi is going to be here on, uh, if you're Eastern time, it's actually going to be pretty early 8 a.m. on uh, 8.30 a.m. on Friday, uh, March 26th. And we're going to talk about the new documentary about women leaving Islam. And we'll also talk about some of the recent um, things that she has been uh, up to, her critique of Ayan Hirsi Ali's book and, and several other other things. So watch out for that one. We're also going to have uh, Jimmy Bunkash is going to be back. Uh, Yay! Talk about Jimmy. his uh, viral article now um, that was published. By Dawkins a approved. Dawkins approved, yeah, the, about Islamic homophobia, which is a really brave thing, as he said, for an LGBTQ platform to do, is to openly publish an article about Islamic homophobia. So um, that's going to be interesting. And at that point, he'll probably have some uh, sort of backlash and feedback uh, to the article. So we'll probably, we're going to have him on at some point, too. And then we're going to have Gondol on for sure, again, because we have to talk, so much, talk about so much stuff. I love this episode. I love the last episode. Me you know, or to this stuff. I think it's going to be fun. Um, if you guys go to patreon.com slash SJME, you can get access. You can watch all of this stuff live and ask questions uh, as it happens on video for as little as a dollar a month. All right. So we become a patron because you have loads and loads of advantages. Um, and if not, then to go to iTunes and uh, give us a, a rating. If you rank us, that helps us become uh, featured. Um, and, and subscribe to us on YouTube. Share, yeah, and just absolutely assault that subscribe button, um, and just you know bang the bell. Oh. But this has been great. Would you have on that button? <laughs> oh, I love that. But but there's a lot of things in this stuff I didn't know. It was very illuminating. Well, yeah. literally illuminating when it comes to the you know the it's like ominous. Yeah. Yeah, the lights coming out of it. So, thank you. <laughs> laser beams. <laughs> yeah, laser beams. All right, good. All right, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to everybody who who was here and uh, listening. And thank you, Abdullah. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. The secular jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadist.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.